Welcome to the Festival Travel Podcast, hosted by Nicolette Lacky. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 15 of the Festival Travel Podcast. Today I got Ellie Cole. Would you like to introduce yourself, Ellie? Sure. Hey team. Hi listeners. I'm Ellie Cole. I'm a retired Paralympian. I've just spent 16 years traveling the world with the Australian swim team and I'm now retired. So I spend most of my time in my apartment, but um, like I said, I've traveled the world and I've had a really great opportunity um, to represent Australia at four Paralympic Games. So it's been a crazy ride, but I've learned a lot of things, particularly about accessibility um, over the last 16 years, which I'm really excited to share some insights with. Yeah. So can you give a bit of a background on with a Paralympic game and Commonwealth game you went to just listeners who are 100% up to speed with your path? Yeah, so like I said, I've been to um, four Paralympic Games and <laughs> I've been to three Commonwealth Games. Sorry, I laughed because I had to think about how many I've been to. Um, my first Games was the Beijing Paralympics in 2008 and then following Beijing, I represented Australia at the London Games, the Rio Games and more recently the Tokyo Games. Um, you know, all of those countries were quite different from one country to the other. Um, all uh, all of their games had different organising committees and wanted to leave a different impact on the way that the games uh, ran in terms of the legacy that they wanted to leave behind. Um, and then if you think about the Commonwealth Games, we have para-athletes who are travelling with able-bodied athletes and so accessibility might not be um, front of mind for Commonwealth Games organising committees, but I feel like uh, most games have done uh, things really well and I feel like some other games, things could have certainly been better. But, um, yeah, I'm really excited to speak about what hosting a Paralympic Games can do for a country um, and some of the things that I've learnt. Yeah, because I do like the concept of, having able-bodied and people with disability together in the Commonwealth game, but it's just probably more logistic to work with at the dealing with more people at one instead of the two groups. So, yeah. So usually like at a Paralympics, um, like the Olympic Village is also used as a Paralympic Village, but it's two separate games. So you're not catering for as many people each time. And I think there's a lot of intent behind accessibility when you're hosting a Paralympic Games, obviously. But in a Paralympic village, there's a few thousand athletes and maybe only three or 4% of those athletes actually have a disability. So that's when it's really interesting when you see the concept of universal design because um, the village has been actually designed for the minority, but it ultimately helps the majority in the end. And that's been fascinating to see as well. What it was like when you first went to your first ever Paralympic game in London, in what, Beijing? Yeah. It was in 
Beijing. Yeah. So my first Paralympic Games was all the way back, back in 2008 and I was uh, 16 years old. And to be honest, Nicholas, I actually don't remember too much about the Beijing Games because I think I was a deer in the headlights for most of my experience. Um, but it was incredible going to a country that didn't speak English, um, a country that ne- may necessarily not have promoted their citizens who have a disability as well as they could have, um, and to be able to step into that world of theirs um, as somebody that did have a disability and somebody who played sport, um, I suppose, onto a stage where they had been contemplating hosting the Games for quite some time by that stage. Um, I actually don't remember too much in terms of, like, the Athletes' Village. I do remember that I was having, like, peaking duck every day in the dining hall. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I went to that Games, I think, with my L plates on more than anything and was just learning about what it meant to be a Paralympian and and what it meant to have a really big impact in the way that the Paralympics has with its platform for people with disabilities. Um, you know, I was so, I suppose, narrow-minded in thinking that being a Paralympian is all just about playing sport, but it sends a much bigger social message than that. And I think in Beijing it was certainly a learning experience for me on just how huge of an impact we could actually have. Yeah. So did you see any difference between a Paralympic in the way they look at accessibility in the Paralympic village? Um, Yes, I did. I don't remember Beijing, like I said. I don't remember what the accessibility was like. Um, In London, everything was perfect. Um, The London Organising Committee, I believe, were one of the first organising committees to host an Olympics and a Paralympics where they really focused on equality between the two games. And it started off with equality of just sponsorship. So if you sponsored the Olympic Games, you had to ultimately sponsor the Paralympic Games as well. Um, And they were really intentional with their attitude towards the hosting of Paralympic Games and the kind of legacy that they wanted to leave behind. And so um, ultimately the London Organising Committee, I feel were actually promoting the Paralympics more so than the Olympic Games in terms of like an equity standpoint. And it became hugely successful. Um, the accessibility in the village was very well thought out because they did want to leave that legacy behind. Uh, so that was really great. And if you compare the London Games to the Rio Games, it was like ch- chalk and cheese. I remember in Rio, I'm not sure if you remember the story, but they actually ran out of budget to host the Paralympic Games. They spent all of the Paralympic budget on the Olympic Games. And so by the time we got into the Rio um, Paralympic Village, it was like everything had closed down um, to get to the dining hall. It was very hilly. And so those that were using mobility aids in wheelchairs were really struggling. Um, there weren't any like tactile flooring, so visually impaired uh, athletes were really struggling and the floor was all cobblestone. So, you know, you couldn't really use like a walking cane and you couldn't really use a wheelchair. And also I do remember there was just like random, I don't know, just rubble everywhere or like footpaths would just randomly end without, you know, <laughs> without anywhere to go. And so to try and navigate that as a person with a disability, if you have like a visual impairment, 
or in a over in a wheelchair or even a cognitive impairment to some extent was really challenging. Um, the accessibility in Tokyo was great because, uh, you know, Toyota were huge sponsors of the Paralympic Games and um, they had uh, these like um, little self-driving cars that would kind of drive around the village to pick up people to take them around so we could limit our walking but they had to actually shut that down pretty quickly because I think someone that was visually impaired accidentally walked in front of one of the vehicles and they realized that um it could have been dangerous so they shut them down pretty quickly <laughs> yeah because I think that why after I think what Rio game then the Olympic Paralympic Paralympic Committee we started and put all the food shop game into developed countries like Power, LA and Brisbane. Yeah. Uh, it was appalling. And I think like I've I've also been to a Commonwealth Games that was um held in a country that I suppose didn't have the forefront of universal design in their thinking. And um, that was the Delhi Commonwealth Games. And, like, some in some of the apartments, like, in the laundry, like, the walls weren't even built. So, like, if you had a visual impairment, you could have walked directly off, like, a seventh-floor building, you know. Um, and so, yeah, you've seen some absolute shockers. But it's like that outside of Paralympic villages as well. You know, you don't need to be in a Paralympic village to see poor design it's everywhere um and this is great that you know a podcast like this is raising awareness yeah. about those things so what it like going through airport security in australia at well at other countries around the world um for somebody like i have a mobility aid in a prosthetic um for me it's pretty easy to go through an airport security in australia and i find um even more recently with the technology I can walk through a scanner and it can highlight that I have metal but only in my right leg. And so if I'm wearing shorts, they won't even need to like wand me down. They'll just go, okay, I can see that you have a, like a mobility aid and they'll just let me keep walking. Um, I know in the US they're very strict, obviously, um, what happened with 9-11 in um, their security protocols and so things just take a little bit longer. And then you go to some countries who may have never seen a prosthetic before. And I remember going through Dubai, I believe it was, a few years ago, and they wanted to take my prosthetic through the x-ray machine, which I was fine with. Um, I went through the x-ray machine and it got to the other side. And they were like, we need to we need to take this away for testing. And I was like, well, where are you taking it? Because I can't walk without it. And like, oh, it will just take like maybe a 24 hours to test all of the materials inside. And I was like, you can't take that away from me for 24 hours. Um, and so I, I had to negotiate with this airport security to let me take my leg and move on and that I wasn't a threat um, because they didn't have the policies and procedures in place to um, security screen someone that had a prosthetic. So uh, I feel like in countries that, I suppose, hide disability more than Australia do, their policies and procedures certainly aren't developed in the, a way that Australia's is, um, and people can get very confused as to what to do with someone that has a disability. Yeah, because I also think it's like a culture in, between developed and developing nations that 
developed relations by Australia, England, United States, etc., etc. That took more research and understanding in accessibility, while de- developing nations not so much. Yeah, like you're right when you say it, it's a huge cultural um, consideration when it comes to accessibility. You can see that the countries who are more inclusive and do provide more opportunities for people that have a disability to participate in mainstream society, usually um, any kind of uh, limitations or accessibility issues have already been well thought out for quite some time. And, you know, there's planning committees that have people that actually have lived experiences who are making these policies. So, um, yeah, culture plays a huge part in accessibility, I think. And then... What is your general consideration when you go to the game and travel in general for accessibility-wise? I think my accessibility is quite good um, because of the technology and my prosthetic. But one consideration that I do need to make is how far I walk and making sure that I'm not walking long distances day after day. So for somebody like in my experience, if I went on a Kentucky tour where we were like hiking everywhere and running here and running there, I would probably struggle after about two days with that um, just because I get pressure sores from my prosthetic. And then once the skin breaks around my prosthetic, I can't really walk without consider- considerable pain. Um, and so I think that's the biggest consideration is just the amount that I walk, um, making sure that I'm staying off my feet when I can. Um, but I do find I've just turned 31. <laughs> I actually have found in the last couple of years, I've really slowed up with um, how far I'm able to walk and for how long. I'm not sure if it's just me retiring from sport and not using my body as much, but yeah, things are getting really hard really quickly. <laughs> yeah. And then I had listened to the Kurt Burnley one plus one. You do talk about how people talk to people with to disabilities and how they treat them differently to able-bodied people. With, I strongly believe that is a disability issue because some people might pull back from it due to the way the language has been moved and stuff. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think there's there's still a conception that, um, preconceived conception that, if if you use the wrong language towards somebody that has a disability, that you are going to cause extreme offence. Um, other times I think people are afraid to ask questions because they're not sure what language to use and it could make the person asking questions feel uncomfortable because all of a sudden nobody likes to be in a scenario where they don't have any of the answers but they have all of the questions. Um and I think that's what's so great about kids is that they're so inquisitive. They'll just ask questions and they learn very quickly because you'll tell them the answers. Um, I, I wish that adults were more like that. But we're seeing so many people like Kurt Fernley and Dylan Olcott, myself, other Paralympians, people who are doing great work in the disability space who are in media all the time. And 
the exposure on social media is huge. Um, there's heaps of adaptive workout pages and exercise programs now um, that anybody with a disability can just like work out from the comfort of their own home because there's adaptive programs that are catered to those people. Um, and so now that we're seeing so much more exposure, like people are just finding out the answers over time kind of thing. And I don't know if you even just think about the word disability, like how ridiculous that word is. Um, people are actually finding that if you have a disability, it's more adaptability than disability. And so um, the adaptation's really important. And that's a key part of, I wish we could change the word of disability somehow to like have the word adaptive in it, because it's a really great skill that a lot of people with disabilities actually have. And I think mainstream society is starting to realize that and they're like how can we become more like people with that have disabilities <laughs> which i think everyone kind of secretly wants one of some yeah. kind yeah because i also see a trend currently where people instead of studying disability they mention the type of disability they have so they would say like i stand for the human care Instead of saying the word disability, which mm. I see a lot now with the people, my friend and people I work with who have disability as well. So. Yeah, I think over time you just learn the right language to use. Like even, for example, the other day I was talking about one of my friends who has short stature and I was speaking to an able-bodied person about her and um, she's like, oh, is that the term that you use Um for a short people, a short stature. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, I never, I've never, i never known that. And I was like, I've never even thought twice about it because I've spent a lot of time with her and I just kind of know the language to use. So the more exposure that there is, I think the more that uh, it's quite easy to pick up on the language. But um, like for myself having a disability, I know that if somebody doesn't call me an amputee or calls me something else, like I'm not going to get offended over it. I just know that they haven't had the exposure that they've needed um, to use the right terminology. So I'll just kind of politely correct them and then they'll never make that mistake. Well, not that it's a mistake, but they'll never use, yeah. Um, yeah, never use those old words again. Yeah. So what accessibility requirement do you need in accommodation when looking at it or at the Paralympics again? So when we go to a Paralympics uh Australia as a country actually like we all have are allocated to one building so we'll take over like a whole building within the Paralympic village um a few months out from the Paralympic games we'll kind of get a map of the village and we'll find out where we've been allocated and then from there we kind of make a plan on how far away our building is to the transport hub so that we can get to the competitions and how far the building is away from the dining hall because we go to the dining hall three times a day to eat um and so in terms of like the accessibility and accommodation, like I said, I really struggle with walking long distances. So I think that's like the biggest consideration is like how far away our home base is from all of the things that I need in the village. In terms of the in-room accessibility, I don't need to um, anything like too different to what I have at home. Like I live on a third story apartment in Sydney and so I'm used to climbing stairs. But one thing I have noticed about going to a Paralympics is that um, the buildings are all very tall and the elevators are all very small. And so if you have a whole team staying with you, you have a wheelchair rugby team, men and women's team, and a wheelchair basketball team, men and women, and you also have people who are playing other sports that are also in wheelchairs, 
And so you might have like 90 people that are using wheelchairs on your team and enough space in an elevator for two at a time. (laughs) And so you need to make an allowance when you're traveling to your competition that you could be waiting half an hour for the lift because the lift will open, it will be full because there might be two chairs and two people in there and you'll have to wait for the next one, but they're trying to transport 90 wheelchairs down the elevator. So um, I think that's like a something in the Paralympic Village that hasn't quite yet been solved. I don't know how it will be solved, but I'm really interested to um, see Australia host the 2032 Games in Brisbane and um, maybe maybe put some bigger elevators in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then what would you like to do change to make travel more accessible in general? That's a really great question. I think um, at the moment, the way that we're seeing infrastructure being designed by city councils or by host nations of the Paralympics, it's all very much forward planning. But for in the instance of Japan, Japan is Tokyo was a very old city. So when they did um, win the rights to host the Paralympic Games, there was a lot of old infrastructure that never ever catered for people with a disability. I know that after um, Tokyo hosted the Paralympic Games, now like 96% of the train stations in Tokyo are now accessible. Um, And so I think every country in the world should plan for their city to be as accessible as it would be if they were hosting the Paralympics. (laughs) It's like I feel like a lot of countries wait until they host the Paralympics to make their city accessible, but I don't know. It would be really interesting to see like the mayor of a a huge city in a country say, if we hosted the Paralympics tomorrow, would our city be accessible enough? Um, Are we catering for not just uh, mobility needs and wheelchair needs, but are we also catering for visually impaired, for hearing impaired, for cognitive impaired, um, those that have mental health conditions? Um, because we've seen that if we implement universal design, like it helps everybody, it helps the elderly, it helps parents who are pushing prams, it helps delivery workers who are just delivering Amazon packages. Um, Amazon's not sponsored of this podcast, by the way, (laughs) but, um, it, it genuinely, if you make a city more accessible, it genuinely does help everybody. Um, and once you put those accessibility options in place, they are there permanently. So whilst it might be a big investment up front. Um, the long term, it's a, a much better solution to a lot of problems. So in terms of what I would like to see in future, I'd like to see every town adopt a Paralympic host city mentality. Yeah. And then and then there's a visual representation. I had come across this morning that photo at our Woolwich with a little girl with a professor led series in the paper. So how important is visual representation? I, I speak to this a lot about how important visual representation is because when I was uh, nine years old, the Sydney Olympics came to Australia and I watched the Olympics but I didn't watch the Paralympics and not because I didn't want to because I didn't know what the Paralympics even were, like was. And I grew up having a disability and I didn't even know about the Paralympic Games. Um, and so my heroes when I was younger were like Ian Thorpe and Susie O'Neill and Patria Thomas and Jodie Henry and a lot of other swimmers. Um, but I never had a Paralympic hero when I was growing up because I didn't know that there was one. And so uh, 
we fast forward to like the Tokyo 2020 Games and we're seeing huge sponsors of the Olympic team also sponsoring Paralympic athletes and in turn using those Paralympic athletes in campaigns where they're represented um, with images of like strength and uh, capability and doing incredible things. It's pretty impressive. And being able to see Mia, um, who's that little girl that you were speaking about with one leg, seeing my Woolworths um, poster in there and running up to her and say, him, saying to her mum, like there's someone who looks like me who is like, I was like kind of wearing swimmers and I looked really strong and stuff. Like it's cool. But, you know, at the same time it can be really dangerous because um, I, I really feel for people who have a disability that aren't Paralympians in a way because I feel like, a lot of people now associate Paralympians up disability with Paralympians and there's an unfair expectation that everybody that has a disability should be a Paralympian um, and that's not the case at all. But, um, you know, that's when I think we really need to be lifting up other industries with disability, not just sport. Like I think we've done a really great job in sport, but there's still so many areas that need to be addressed like education, and like employment accessibility in our public spaces as well. Um, and like, we're doing a great job of celebrating people with disabilities in sport, but that exposure is not quite there in any other industry. And so um, that representation is really important because I don't want Mia to grow up thinking that she needs to be just an athlete to be able to achieve anything in her life. Like I want her to think that she can be the prime minister of Australia um, or anything that she wants to be a scientist or a researcher um, not just an athlete. So I would love to see Mia have that same reaction to many other um, people with disabilities that look like her, but, you know, maybe one that's wearing a lab coat or something, not just a swimsuit. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely still quite a way to make representation more out there for other deaf and stuff. Um, yeah. And then with the... Uh, if you go back to the TV, um, Paralympic on the TV, I still think there's some sort of way to improve still because when I was watching the trophy, there were nowhere near the stadium at up the Olympic covered, the real Paralympic covered on seven. So there were uneven distribution and a lot of the stuff I wonder what had to go onto the seven plus app, and because they were putting in shows that are not related to the Paralympics when it actually were on, so it's not still quite a bit of a way to to go on that. Yeah, it's like Channel Seven, I think, did a really incredible job at lifting up the Paralympics and. Um, they certainly did a great job. And if you look at like the um, statistics of broadcasting between the Rio Games and the Tokyo Games, they made a huge commitment, I think, to broadcasting the Paralympics, particularly in Tokyo. And it was received really well from the public. Um, and in a way, I think they were pioneers. Like it was a bit of a case study to now Network 9, who have now won the rights to the Olympic Games on how to, on how to broadcast the Paralympic Games as well. Um, I think they really got the formula right with showcasing the stories of the athletes as well. I think they did a really great job of that. But, um, you know, there's there's going to be inequalities there, and we did see that with the Paralympics. Um, 
I'm going to be really curious to see now what Network 9 do and um, hopefully utilise some of the Paralympic uh, or talent or people with disabilities that have lived experience in their broadcasting team. Like I know that in the UK, Channel 4, I think for the Tokyo Games, I think like 100% of their presenters that were broadcasting the games all had a disability, which had never been done before. Like how cool would that be to see that in Australia? But that that's where that exposure and representation that I was talking about before is really important. It's about someone who is at the top, like making a, a really brave decision uh, for the positive social impacts that that's going to have. Um, and it worked very, very well for Network 4 and... I would love to see that for Network 9 um, in Australia, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. So I'm going to wrap it up now. So thank you for coming on to the Decable Chapel podcast. Not a problem. I had a great time. You have been listening to the Decable Chapel podcast. You can follow Nicholas on his Instagram page, nlahu20.